Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here with another CHP special episode. Thanks to the miracles and wonders of social media, I had the pleasure to meet Signore Nick Zanella, a longtime resident of China and, well, like your humble narrator, quite passionate about the history there. And I've invited him onto the CHP to talk about the history of surfing in China, as well as to introduce elements of surfing culture from China's distant past. All the way from China's vacation paradise, the island of Hainan, Welcome to the CHP, Nick Zanella. Thank you, Laszlo. So happy to be part of the CHP after following you and your fantastic episodes for many, many years. You know, my wife is a tea master. Uh, I enjoyed your tea series, your philosophy series, and um, it's such an honor for me to be part of this. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you with us today. I'm glad we finally got a chance to do this. Let's just get right into it. Tell me about your journey from the famous Renaissance city of Ferrara in Italy to studying Chinese at the University of Venice and how, in 1993, you made your way to China. Well, Ferrara is a beautiful town. And it was, uh, I mean, people from Ferrara calls it like the New York of the Renaissance, but when I got to know her in the 80s, it was possibly the most boring place on the planet. And at least for, for me, I was a surfer and a skater. I hated soccer. I might be the only person on the planet who hasn't seen one minute of the World Cup this year. And I didn't really fit in that environment. I felt out of place there. So surfing, skateboarding and China were possibly my way um, to differentiate myself from that. My fascination with China started really early, and um, it happened that I bumped into a copy of uh, Journey to the West. And when I was fascinated, I was born in 68, the year of the monkey, and I could totally see myself in Sun Wukong, the monkey king. He was witty, irreverent, you know, like keen on adventures, and, and I was the bored kid that needed a, a sense of purpose to become good. Chinese culture and uh, surfing became my sense of purpose. So Journey to the West opened a few, a few doors into Chinese culture. I fell in love with Taoism. I read it at Tao Te Ching really early. Of course, I didn't understand a word of it, or at least I thought I did, but I lately realized I hadn't. And when I finished high school, I enrolled in Kafoskari University in Venice that had a great Chinese department with a literature and philosophy program in cooperation with Peitai University. And I literally flew through the 21 exams of the Zhongwenxi. My final paper was about Wang Yanming. And Wang Yanming, that you so brilliantly described in, the, in your China philosophy series, uh, in the 90s was still banned from mainland China, so I couldn't study that in Beijing. So I flew, I spent two summers in Taiwan and um, prepared my final paper 
and I, for my final paper, I translated the poems that Wang Yanmin wrote while in jail, and I tried to reconstruct his philosophy through those poems. After university, I started working as a freelance interpreter for company based in northern Italy and all over Europe, actually, all the way to Germany. That would give me enough money and time to support my travels and to support the surf magazine that I was working for, that was called Surf News. The magazine became much bigger in the early 2000s, and through that, we started organizing surf exploration trips in China. China has uh, thousands of kilometers of exposed coastlines and the most reliable wind patterns on the planet, which is the northeast monsoon. So we went to Fujian, Guangdong, Hainan, of course, uh, mapped most of the coastline and um, writing, write, writing for surf magazines. Then in 2010, when uh, Chinese government started understanding the potentials of surfing as a market, I got invited in the first international event that was held in Hainan. That was 2010. I caught fantastic waves and I fell in love with the island. And in 2011, I quit my job as a surf editor and moved full-time in a small fisherman village that had uh, fantastic waves. And I found my first job about 2011, and I've been here since then. All right, I can understand that. Gee, I loved Hainan. I would, uh, I'd go there in a second. But l- let me ask you one thing I've always wondered. What, where do we get the word surf? Is that, how did that enter the English dictionary? Why is it called surfing? Where'd that come from? Well, when we talk about wave riding, surfing is only a small part of it. So let's, let, let me answer your question. So the word surfing entered the English dictionary only in the 17th century. But, but people have been catching waves since the dawn of times. The word was mutated from the Sanskrit word sufe. I, I don't know if my pronunciation is anywhere close, but... That's the word, and it, and it went through Portuguese, but that was only the, denoting the area around the coast where the waves break. The word surfing started denoting wave riding only much later, possibly at the end of the 19th century. But again, the practice of wave riding has a much longer history. If you think about it, fishes, dolphins, otters... Any sort of animal or human being that needs to move through breaking water surfs. The problem is if they do it for recreational purposes or as a mean of transportation. So who were the first Euros to witness people wave riding while standing, which would be the traditional surfing? Exactly. A person standing up on a board and catching waves for recreational purposes. Well, the Ben Finney, who is possibly the most acclaimed surf historian dealing with the matter, suggests that some sort of wave riding might have been practiced by Austronesian people as early as 2000 BC, but we don't have anything written about that. The, the first description that we have of it surely the most famous, comes from Dr. William Anderson, who was a surgeon on board of the Resolution that was part of the Captain Cook expedition. In 1777, while anchored in, um, in Tahiti, 
he noted that local must have felt the most supreme pleasure, that's how he described it, by riding waves. And that, that is possibly the first written description by Europeans of the art of wave riding. Mm. So would you say it began in the South Pacific, the whole idea of wave riding with the Austronesians or, or maybe even the Peruvians on the other side, on the west coast of South America? Yeah, that's debatable because they were doing it for mm. fishing. They were catching waves to get, go in and out of the bay. We still don't know if the Peruvians actually had fun doing it. But we, what we know for sure is that the surfing as we know it today definitely come from mm. Polynesia, Hawaii in particular. Matt Warshaw, who is the author of the Encyclopedia of Surfing, also agrees on surfing going back along the Austronesian diaspora all the way to 2000 BC. But our version comes from Hawaii. And what we know for sure is that around 1200 AD, the practice that then was not called surfing, it was called henalo, that means like water sliding, not only was practice for fun, but it, it was the epicenter of the all social life and cultural life of the islands. The king was surfing, there was an aristocracy, there were surf breaks uh, that were only the king could go, and if commoners would go, they would be beheaded. And the king was riding particular board that he could only ride, and there were specific rituals, deities, festivals. The sport evolved in Hawaii until <laughs> colonization happened and um, diseases and cultural repression kind of annihilated it. it was like Hawaiian population dropped down drastically, so surfing was almost lost. It started his cultural transfer into the West around 20th century, early 20th century. You know, Jack London spoke about it enthusiastically in his The Cruise of the Shark, but the most famous person, who, which is like the forefather of modern surfing, is Duke Kahanamoku. He was an Olympic gold swimmer. He was a celebrity around 1910. He brought surfing wherever he went. He went to Australia. He literally started the Australian surf movement by doing... Uh, a demonstration in Freshwater Beach in modern days, mainly he taught surfing in Europe and he's credited with the cultural transfer from Heenalu to what we now call surfing all, all over the world. The fact that surfing entered the Olympic in Tokyo was a hundred year old dream by the Duke. Like the Duke is possibly the most uh, revered person in the history of modern surfing. So you were already all in to surfing and surfing culture when you had your epiphany in Kunming at the uh, Precious Hall of the Great Hero. What happened that set things in motion for you that, that you so nicely detailed in your, I should mention this, your 2019 book, Children of the Tide, which I thoroughly enjoyed? Tell me that story. I had seen signs of wave riding in Chinese culture before. There's a passage in the water margin where one of the outlaws surfs a wave on his belly. And that is like, there must be something. And the word they were using was talang. That means like treading waves. And, I, and you know, I had hints the way that song painters 
quaint ways so realistical that only someone who has a deep knowledge of, of wave riding can achieve that level of details. But the real epiphany happened in 2006. I was traveling with my girlfriend from Hainan. Uh, our goal was to get in, in, um, on the Everest, at the Everest base camp and visiting Buddhist monasteries all on the way. So when we got to Kunming, we went and checked the Chongjusha, which is uh, Chan. It was actually the first Zen, let's say, Chan monastery that people would encounter going east along the Silk Road, coming, coming uh, into, into China. The temple was much older. The temple goes down to the Yuan dynasty, but it had burned down in the 1870s. So when they, when they commissioned the restructure, the restructuring um, of, of it, they call this um, sculpture from Sichuan province, Li Guangxu, who built a 10,000 Luohan installation. There's many around China. There's about like 20, 30. But this is all, the only one with surfers. Then I entered the All of the Precious Hero and my jaw dropped. There's um, about 20, 30 uh, Luohan standing up on me- mythological animal. But there was one of these guys who really struck my imagination. And he's standing on a fish that has a shape of a shortboard. And his stance was perfect. You know, back foot flat, front foot 45 degrees, back arm up, eyes looking in front of, five meters in front of the board. That's exactly what we teach when we teach kids in surf school. So um, I thought was, how could someone born in southwest China in in the 1900, so realistically depict surfing. If he hadn't seen it, surfing was not a part of Chinese culture, as far as I know. And I went and looked for the abbot who was drinking tea in his room. He was frightened by this strange lao laowai, like dyed hair, kind of surfer-looking laowai, looking for information about an activity that he hadn't even heard of. So I asked him what are those surfers doing? I said, what is surfing? I said, come on, like surfing is what you're depicting on that wall. And he didn't really understand the word surfing. Maybe my tones were off or he simply hadn't heard it. So I physically dragged him in front of them, of that installation. And I said, those guys, who are they? And he said, look, these guys are, are Lohan. The enjoying life at their whole utmost while waiting for the Maitreya to come. And I said, why, why are they surfing? I said, oh, now I got, I got what you want to say. Like, I have seen surfing on TV. That's, we don't call that surfing. We don't call them surfers. Those are Nong Chao Er. And he scribbled three cursive characters on my moleskin and pretty much left. Okay, there was buses, busloads of tourists getting into the temple. His Nokia was going crazy inside his robe, and he pretty much left me there. And all I, I, I had just had the time to ask him, where can I find information about them? He said, you should go to Hangzhou. So that was my revelation. All I was left with was the name of the Song capital and three Chinese characters that, I, that at that time I couldn't really understand. What were those three Chinese characters again? Nong, as in, you know, manipulating. Uh, Chao, as in tide. Er, as in uh, earth, you know, like kid. 
So children of the tide. Nong chao er, okay. Nong chao er. So that's what sparkled all my all my research. The fun thing that the task was quite daunting, and it it took a decade to cast some light. I'm pretty sure there's still a lot to be researched about those guys, but、uh, that was the beginning. Great. So so tell me about your archaeological mission in China. Did you? Find anything on who the first surfers in China were? Well, archaeology implies most likely looking for physical traces of the past. My research was based on on on, on books. I didn't dig out ancient surfboards, so it was more about scanning three thousand years of literal tradition, looking for known tower. I discovered. Something quite interesting. I discovered that playing with the tide was practiced by fishermen from the states of Wuyue. It's quite fun because, as we as we will see in some of the description, they had、uh, long hair and tattoos that makes them quite similar to modern day surfers、uh, in some sort of、uh, cross cultural serendipity. Anyway, the Wu people were renowned in Chinese history for their water skills. They commonly work as fishermen or barge pilots. What's interesting is that ethnographically, the Wu and the Yue people are direct descendants of the Hemutu and Majaban cultures, who settled southeastern coastlines of Asia as farming as, as farming fishermen like a few thousand years before the Common Era. DNA research. Also suggests that there's a connection in between these early fishermen and Austronesian people and Taikadai settlers. This is pretty much the same ethnic group that triggered the Austronesian migration, that brought Taiwanese and people from eastern China all the way to Madagascar, Polynesian, Hawaii, all the way to Eastern Island. So let's talk about some surfing poems. And literature. You didn't find any artifacts or ancient surfboards buried deep underground, but from your book from a few years ago,、uh, "Children of the Tide," it contained a few surf poems. I recall. So maybe we can all、uh, groove on a nice poetic interlude. What did you? What do you got for us? Yeah, I found plenty of evidence. Okay,、uh, one thing that I I want to say that it, that was not in the book is that that in 2017 I had the luck to be invited to a symposium in Hangzhou where I got given、uh, pretty much all the cultural references that I needed. I had already found a few by myself, you know, by scanning libraries and and online. But that that symposium really opened a whole door of possibility. The first reference to wave riding I found was contained in a poem by Song Dynasty poet Pang Lan. The poem was dated 1009 and was actually brought by a contemporary famed by Xi Jinping himself, who quoted it、uh, while opening the 2016 G20 summit in Hangzhou. And it's quite famous in China as well. People kind of know it by heart, but they don't know that they're speaking about surfing. The poem is called "On the Tune of Juchuan," and it recites: "I often remember the spectacles of the tide when everyone in town hurries to the river eager to watch. When it arrives, 
it feels as if the whole ocean has drained empty amid the sound of countless steel drums the nung chower go toward the head of the wave and stand up they hold a red flag that never gets wet i have dreamt this view many times and when i wake up my heart is still shocked panlan is watching as a show an elaborated spectacle that was held during the mid-autumn festival organized by the imperial court and attended by pretty much everyone in in hanzhou the show of the mid-autumn festival that's also called the boar watching festival in hanzhou was the wave itself this majestic tidal boar that climbs up the chantanjan river from the estuary up to 100 kilometers inland this tidal and, and of course the non tower the the surfers taming it the thing that matters here is that the non tower shan that means go toward the head of the wave and stand up stand up is um, they using the verb li which describes a broad shoulder man stand, standing up on something flat so it means that there is a motion of standing up on something this was like the first poem i standing up on that wave this was the first poem that that i found and what struck me was that the word that the character for standing up li is quite similar to the petroglyph used in ancient hawaii to depict the surfer this poem sparked my imagination and let me and let me go deeper and deeper in, into this research the next thing i found is not a poem and it's possibly the best first account description that we have uh, of a non-tower riding and it's in a recollection of Wuling Garden Wuling Joshe written by Zhou Mi Zhou Mi was in Hanzhou during the fall of the Southern Song Dynasty and unlike other bureaucrats he refused cooperating with the Yuan Dynasty and he writed this um, recollection of Wuling Garden, which is a PG, it's not an official account. It's they call brush notes. They are more personal, first-hand accounts of events. And he and he kept telling how good life was under the Southern Song and pretty much how bad it had become during the UN. One of the things he describes is contemplating the tide. It's this uh, long description of the boar watching festival taking place in Hanzhou during the mid-autumn festival. Why the mid-autumn festival? Mid-autumn festival happens on the first full moon of the, of the fall, and that's when the tidal range in the Chantanjan is at its maximum. The boar wave in the Chantanjan is triggered by the tidal change and during the mid-autumn festival it can reach five meters in height so Zhou Mi describes hundreds of brave watermen from Wu with long hair and tattoos paddling against the flow toward the oncoming waves appearing and disappearing among the leviathan waves and then they leap up and perform hundreds maneuvered without getting the tail of their flags even slightly wet this is how they show off their skills hence the nobles reward them with silver prizes what we're looking at here through the eyes of jomi is a, a military parade right before the tidal wave comes 
the ships are inspected. The Navy is uh, performing a, a military show. When the wave comes and it's like precisely scheduled, because the Song Dynasty had like down to the second tide charts on when that wave was about to hit, then the army retreats in one of the large safe canals of Hangzhou and the, these young watermen come out and they paddle. They, they get in the water, they swim toward the, the wave, and then they turn, and then they stand up, and they perform with flags in front of the massive crowd uh, witnessing the show. The emperor is also looking at this show from his palace. The, the nobles are all at the Zhejian Pavilion, right on the banks of the river. It's not far from where the Six Harmonies Pagoda is in Hangzhou right now. And uh, they perform 100 maneuvers. That's how Jomi describes it. We don't know what those maneuvers are and how they compare to modern-day surfing. But in another passage, also of the same book, he describes them as walking up and down the board, dancing. What they're doing there is they're performing for the emperor in a sort of competition that may be the earliest surf competition in the history of the sport. And the best of them get rewarded with silver prizes. They hold flags. That's quite a um, common description throughout the poems. And they're so skilled that those flags don't even touch the water. So Jomi's description is a first-hand account, and it's possibly the most detailed. He goes into even more detail in another passage, also in Recollection of Wooling Garden, where he describes them as resembling Buddhist monks. He says, and I quote, They gather in a group of a hundred, holding colored flags and competing treading waves. They head straight to the river mouth to welcome the tide. Moreover, there's some who tread on drifting wood, tossed around by the water like puppets, performing hundreds of water tricks, having fun, each displaying great mastery. You have to think that the language used by Song Dynasty bureaucrat doesn't really make justice to the art of wave riding, in, in a sense that it's quite a codified language. What we know for sure is that the word is that, that they're riding on drifting wood or on, on, on logs. In, there might not have been a specific word in his lingo to say surfboard, but them using wood to catch waves and doing tricks for fun to me is surfing. Okay, Nick, can you just explain what? is a tidal bore. I think not everybody knows what that is. How was the tidal bore created with the Tiantang River? Of course, I don't assume that people know what a tidal bore is. I didn't really know about it until I kind of saw one. The waves that people surf are generally produced by wind blowing on a body of water. The, a tidal wave is produced by a all different uh, set of forces. A tidal wave happens in a funnel-shaped estuary when the tide reached its minimum. 
then tidal range in on the China Sea uh, around Hangzhou is massive. You know, there's like nine meter difference in between low tide and high tide. That's as big as the tides in Alaska or in, in France where they're re renowned for, be, for, for having like big tides. When the tide starts to push in on a funnel-shaped estuary, it, it gets compressed. And uh, the Chantanjian in Hangzhou goes from 70 kilometers to two kilometers wide in just a, a few miles. So the tide climbs up the river, gets compressed, becomes a wave that climbs up the river and breaks like a normal ocean wave and goes on breaking and breaking for 70 kilometers. There's about 100 tidal bores on the planet. Most famous one is the Pororoca in Brazil, but none of them compare to the Chantanjan. Chantanjan, uh, the tidal bore there is called the Mount Everest of, uh, of, of tidal waves. It goes right past the longest bridge uh, in the world on the Hangzhou Bay, and right under that bridge, that's where the tidal board starts to shape up. And it's interesting how the Chinese culture has countless different names to describe the shape of the waves, like the in the um, what happens right under the bridge, the the tidal board is made of two different components, one coming from the east, one coming from the south, and they cross and they get this beautiful X-shaped wave that the Chinese call the Shi Tzu Chao, like character ten wave, and it starts climbing up. The river and it hits the northern bank furiously. That's where most of the casualties happened historically. And then it becomes a long line of white water that goes through Hainin municipality that's uh, east of Hangzhou and then gets into Hangzhou and fully crosses town and, and extinguishes its last breath uh, right past the uh, Liu Hota, the Six Harmonies Pagoda. That wave remains surfable if you got the balls to surf it, because it's a massive body of water moving for over 70 kilometers, possibly the longest wave on the planet. And I've seen people riding it for like 17 kilometers. You know, like commonly the waves we ride in the ocean, but you consider it a long wave if it breaks for 300 meters, that one can be ridden for 70 kilometers. You know, that's how peculiar that wave is. That's pretty long. Let me also ask you, Nick, uh, for all my listeners who love everything about the Song Dynasty, there's also a surfing story involving the great Tsai Xiang. Can you tell that story? Tsai Xiang and surfing, huh? <laughs> that's who would have ever thought. In, in 1031, Tsai Shan obtained his Jingshe degree. It was the, the, like the highest degree offered by ancient Chinese imperial examination. And he was also like a great calligrapher, one of the top calligraphers of, of the Song Dynasty. He happened also to be the governor of Hangzhou. And uh, as I just explained you, that animal of a wave can cause disaster. And the, the number of people dying still nowadays, but just by watching it, it is staggering. And he was the first one who tried to do something about it. He had witnessed a lot of accidents among the tide players. So in 1065, he promoted the first recorded ban against 
surfing. And um, it was entitled Quit Playing with the Tide, Jian Nong Chao. He, and I quote, Some swimmers partake in riding the tide and accidentally throw the body given to them by their parents to the abysses, where fishes and dragon roam. They sink and drown to boast their ability. They send their souls straight to the underworld, their wives and kids crying and staring at the water surface. Their life comes to an end, but not according to natural fate. They die without being mourned. And so he goes on by saying that this year, in an occasion of spectacular tides this year, watching the tide will be allowed as per constitute, but if commoners or, shoulder or soldiers will brave the tidal wave, they will be punished. But there's no records that I found of, of anyone actually being punished. And some um, literature states that they went on riding waves until, at least until the Ming Dynasty in Hangzhou, and then the activity went pretty much underground. It kind of disappeared from uh, poems, from chronicles, from PG, and Taishan was the one who started all of these bits. Quite interesting how wave treading, Talan, is kind of peculiar of the Song Dynasty, while on one hand you have uh, an extreme open-minded society. Sports were a big part of Song Dynasty culture, but on the other hand you have uh, the Confucian law and order, and uh, the two things seem to be at clash, at least uh, in regards to wave riding. So a lot of the Chinese surfing history involves the Qiantang River, Qiantang Jiang, what about in modern times, or at least before COVID hit, is, was it possible or for you or for anybody to surf the uh, tidal bore near Hangzhou? Well, I have to say no. Otherwise, the officials in Hangzhou would condemn me for instigating a, a dangerous activity. <laughs> but uh, the reality is quite different. It is officially illegal to get anywhere close to the wave during uh, during uh, during tidal events, um, but we did it. Um, the first who tamed the river was uh, an Englishman called Stuart Matthews uh, that in 1988 uh, organized an expedition with BBC. He rode it for 11 seconds. And the boat capsized, they lost all the footage. It was quite a, an experience. And then it went unridden all the way until we went there in 2007. And man, that was an adventure. And it's, it's, it's possibly the most hilarious chapter in my book because we, we went there with no permits. We tried to get permits. We got, we got refused. We did it anyway. Police busted us, almost got deported. It is illegal to surf the wave. No one is even allowed to get close to the river during during uh, tidal happenings. And there's waves quite often. It's not only during the full moon that it's surfable for about 100 days a year because it happens only during small tidal fluctuations. So it's quite appealing. You'd be watching it and say, wow, I want to surf that thing, but, but you can't. So you need to be invited. There, there used to be a, a beautiful event organized by Wabzono. There was a company operating in the surf industry and they had good guanxi 
with the Hangzhou municipality and they ran this surf competition from 2008 all the way to 2000 I mean until covid struck and I was lucky enough to work as a surf judge in uh, in uh, in the competition then um, they would invite uh, teams of uh, professional athlete mainly from the USA Australia uh, and Europe and it was fun man like it uh, you need a jet ski to serve that wave because once you fall and you fall quite often you get left behind the waves so you need a jet ski to pick you up and bring you back in front of of the wave and uh, you don't like i strongly discourage anyone that's not a professional to try and do that legal or illegal as it may be because that wave goes through some weird constructions there's about 12 bridges you have to go through there's the banks are fully walled and i mean i forgot to tell you before but the the activity of wave trading most likely disappeared because the river got massively fortified starting from the tang dynasty to the song and ming and during the ming dynasty they all Hangzhou part of the wave already had fortified fortified banks that means that nowadays as in the historical times there's no easy in and out of the water once you're in there and if you fall in the wrong in the wrong place you don't even have a way to climb up the banks because the banks are walled so you got to ride that wave all the way to the uh, six harmonies pagoda then Yeah yeah you I mean there's there's a serious chance for 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 you to die in in that way and the wave becomes massive like before the wave hits as uh, the water rushes out toward the bay at 20 knots speed that's almost as fast as a motorboat can go so you're pretty much waiting for the wave on a speedboat and your engine is almost at full speed but you're standing still and uh, and when it comes it rolls on itself it comes up and changes shape constantly and it raises up and breaks and then disappears in deep water it's it's one of the wonders of the world as uh, joe me stated in his ruling garden chronicles yeah i've only seen videos it just looks so wild nature at its best so while i have you here Let's let's talk about China's surfing scene today. In uh, Hangzhou Youth Times, I read about these Chonglang Gaoshou, all these surfer experts in China, including Stuart Matthews and his Qiantang expedition in 1988. So besides all these foreigners, you know, like yourself, how widespread is surfing in China today? And also where are the best locations to surf in China? Well, there's two different directions that uh, surfing is taking in China. One is that of ziyolanran, that means pretty much like free surfers. And it, when I moved to China in 2011, there must have been 50 surfers like spread around the coastline, mainly in Hainan. In the past five years, they grew exponentially. It's still a niche sport that might be like 30 50,000 surfers right now it has quite a market because uh, surfers are quite devoted people but it's still not um, as widespread as skiing or basketball or, or other major sports 
Then there's the second direction that Chinese surfing is taking, and that's the Olympic project, the surf development project that I work at. Um, I'm currently working for the Hangzhou team quite serendipitously, and I've been coaching the, the national team from the beginning. When surfing entered the Olympic project in 2016, aiming at 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, China took it extremely seriously as seriously as any other sports. So they uh, recruited me and the 1976 world champion Peter Townen to form the first Chinese national team. They allocated $1 million to the project and they started treating it like any other sport, recruiting kids, training them from zero. So now there is quite a big number of so-called professional surfers kids that uh, do nothing but surfing, hoping to attain a gold medal. So those are the two directions. The best location, I mean, Hainan is way the best. I've surfed all the way from Hainan along the coast, all the way to North Korea, which doesn't belong to China, but it's still along the same coastline if you want. And uh, I surfed in Guangdong, Fujian, Zhejiang, and Shantong province, and the Hainan is way the best. You need to think that uh, Chinese surfing relies on um, the northeast monsoon that blows from, say, October all the way to April, and it's the most reliable wave-producing pattern on the planet. There's waves every day in Hainan, and it has really good surf potential. It's for sure as good as Florida, better than some parts of Europe, definitely better than East Coast Italy, where I started surfing. And uh, uh, we got, I mean, the wave quality is, is amazing. Uh, you know, in surfing, we have point breaks and beach breaks. Beach breaks are... You know, just beaches where wave break, but point breaks are the holy grail of, of surfing. There are like waves breaking around headlands, and we have about 10 of them in Hainan. And uh, uh, I've been gorging on them since the past 10 years. When I moved here, I had them all by myself. It doesn't happen to many surfers nowadays. <laughs> surfing world is overcrowded. COVID made life a nightmare for most surfers because everyone is outdoor. Sales of soft tops for beginners boomed during COVID. You talk about any surfer in California or in Europe and everyone is complaining about the waves being full of people, competition becoming fierce. In Hainan, I had a 10-point break by myself, pretty much by myself, for, for, for many, many years. It's becoming more crowded right now, but in Hainan... Like I'm working for the national team and being recognized as, as one of the forefathers of uh, Chinese uh, modern surfing. I'm, I'm the Lao Ta. I know <laughs> one catches my waves when I'm out there. All right. So you're associated with the China national surfing team. How competitive is China on the world scene? Are there any up and comers? I read about Qiu Zhuo. How competitive is China? That's a funny story that I can tell you about this when we formed the first national team, the official would ask us, how long will it take before we win a gold? And, and we told them, like, look, surfing has a very slow learning curve. It's not something that you pick up and you train really hard and you win a gold medal in a few years. 
uh, surfing takes decades before it settles into a nation and produces champions. It took about 100. I mean, let's see, you know, Italy, for example, it took 40 years of surf development before someone even made it in the, in, in the, in the top ranks. And they said, like, look, China went from being a poor country to being the second largest economy in 30 years. We want that to happen in 10 years, and uh, we're going to pay you to achieve that. So China is doing more for surfing than any other nation has done in the history of the sport, and we can see the results. When China joined the world ranking of the International Surfing Association, I mean, we were the last of the last. We, uh, there's a, about 110 nations, and at the beginning, we, China was sitting way back. Uh, with only five years into the Olympic project, the China team already, already climbed the ranks all the way to the 15th place for the girls. And the boys are doing a little bit worse than that. They're on the 26th uh, slot. This statistic is comes from the last uh, World Surfing Games that were held in Huntington in California, where the best of the best was, uh, was, was competing. Everyone was blown away by how fast uh, the level of the athletes was rising. There's a few names that stand out in the team. One is Chiu Zhuo, who was uh, the first Chinese athlete to uh, make a dent uh, in the World Qualifying Series, he was the youngest competitor to take part in an, in an international competition. He's surfing really good, but he was not in Huntington this time. The team was a brand new team. The most promising athlete is this little girl called Yang Sechi, like of all places, coming from some remote village on the, on the mountains of Sichuan province. And uh, she's 14 right now, and she's top level. We, the Olympic uh, Surfing Development Project is a long-term one. You know, the leaders are not dumb. They know that it's going to take at least two more Olympics before we get somewhere. But for sure, that's possibly going to happen faster than getting into the World Cup. I mean, China and surfing seems to have a much better relation with wave riding than, than, with, with, than with soccer. We are aiming at the 2024 Olympics in Los Angeles. Well, I'd say it's been about an hour almost. I'd say I got my money's worth. I'm so glad that our two worlds collided uh, and that you reached out to me. And here we are. How much longer do you uh, reckon you'll remain in uh, beautiful Western Hainan? Any plans? As you for sure know, by having lived in China for such a long time, Laszlo, the relation in between China and Lao, and Lao while I cast, it's a, always a love-hate relation. And uh, in a way, I keep planning going back to Europe with my family. My wife is Chinese. My kid, uh, Amos, I'd love him to study in Europe, but we keep postponing it for two reasons. First of all is that the opportunities that are opening up here in China for me as a surfer and a surf coach and a, a China history enthusiast are endless. And, uh, um, you know, working for the national team and wearing the Chinese uniform is something that doesn't happen to, to, to many Lao Wai. 
So another reason is that I love Hainan, man. It's like Hawaiian weather, uncrowded waves, amazing mangoes, and uh, and so. Uh, this island keeps luring me in and keeping me here. Another reason why I don't want to leave is that I want to go on with my research. There's one thing I haven't told you about the Noon Tower is that they kept treading waves all the way until the 1980s. They do it. They, they kept doing it in Hainin municipality. That's about 50 kilometers outside of Hanzhou and the Chantanjian, where the banks are still not as heavily fortified. And that's possibly the last non-Polynesian surf culture that ever lived on the planet. So I had the chance to talk with some of those guys that kept you know, some of the old Monchauer still living nowadays in, uh, in Hainin municipality. And I would love to dig deeper into that. That would mean, you know, just spending time there, doing field research and, and uh, discovering uh, this uh, very peculiar trait of, uh, of, of surfing culture. The whole idea behind the book is that surfing doesn't belong to anyone. Surfing is a gift that humanity got given. It doesn't belong to the Polynesian. Surfing has been there for... Uh, we have taste of it in, uh, in endless culture. It's, it's something that creates a link in between people and their environment. It's something that it does not make you free, but it for sure makes you feel free, which is already good enough. So I, I would like to stay here a little bit longer, maybe until my, my boy gets into education age, do some more research, catch some more waves, and then uh, go back to Europe, maybe buy a house, on a nice beach and spend my retiring age uh, looking at more waves. It doesn't sound too bad. Well, Nick Zanella, I'm so glad we got to do this. I took one look at your book, Children of the Tide, and I knew right away this topic was made for the CHP. So, grazie mille. Thank you, Laszlo. Grazie mille, Laszlo. So happy to have been part of this. This was great. And I'm good friends with the famous L.A.-based muralist, and he's a major surfing dude about Tom, Chris Wyrick. So next time you pass through my little town here, I'm going to call Chris, and we could all have a, a surferama. I'll stand on the beach and video and put the whole thing on my YouTube channel. That would be amazing. Yeah, I'll set you up, man. Thanks again, Laszlo. So I shan't keep you. I know you got to get your young in off to school and start your day. Yes, yeah. So I hope you all enjoyed this as much as I did. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from L.A., California, Surfing USA. And I'm hoping against hope that you'll join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.